0: You are listening to the Motherhood Unstressed Podcast, and I'm your host, Liz Carlisle. Thank you so much for tuning in. I am so glad that you're here as always, and I'm excited to share the work of my guest with you this week because we're really getting into the future of medicine, and we are just now beginning to truly research the power of plants and and have actual funding behind those research projects And so my guest this week is ethnobotanist, Dr. Cassandra Quave, and she's discussing her groundbreaking work at Emory, which backs up the argument in her new book, The Plant Hunter. That the key to preventing another global health crisis could very likely be in plants and not synthetic compounds. And so this is a very science-heavy episode, but I know you can handle it. That's why you're here, to learn. And I think it's really exciting because if you've been listening to this show for a while, you know that this is a very like crunchy mama vibe that we've got going here. And so to have an actual scientist coming on to discuss how the scientific community is studying the power of plants and how they're backing up with research and data, what we've always intuitively known, I think that that's always a good move. And I'm excited that we're going in that direction um, in the world. So I hope you enjoy this episode. If you do, please share it out and leave us a review. And please enjoy this episode with Dr. Cassandra Quave. Well, hello, Dr. Quave. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad that you're here.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Liz. It's great to be here.
0: Absolutely. So of course, we're going to dive into your new book, which I'm really excited to speak with you about. But before we get into all of that, can you talk to us about the events in your early life that led you to the work that you're doing now?
1: Yeah. So I had a bit of a challenging early life. Um, I was born with multiple congenital skeletal defects. So basically I was missing bones in my right leg and as I got older, I also developed scoliosis and hip dysplasia and just basically every appearance worst nightmare, you know, menagerie of, of, of orthopedic defects. So um, when I was three, I had my leg amputated to help me walk with a prosthetic. And I actually almost died of a hospital acquired infection at three, but 40 something years later, I'm still here. So obviously I survived and I talk about that and much more in, in the book.
0: Yeah. And, and you often hear about children who are in the hospital a lot when they're younger, becoming doctors, becoming, you know, really engaged in the medical world because it was just so primary in their life. I mean, is that the case for you? Was it, was it being in the hospital that kind of sparked this interest in
1: healing, in discovery, in science? Yeah, I think so. I mean, from a very young age, I felt like that was my destiny. Like I thought for the longest time that I was um, really meant to become a surgeon, and I went through all the pre medical coursework. Um, and at the same time, I was also really fascinated with science and with nature. And um, it, it wasn't—it an, was not a direct path that I took to my current job. You know, it took a trip to the Amazon where I really. Um, for the first time experienced healing through different forms of medicine, that I began to understand that instead of practicing medicine, I really wanted to discover new medicines from nature and and make that my career path.
0: Yeah, I love that. And so that leads perfectly into the discussion on your book. The book is called The Plant Hunter, A Scientist's Quest for Nature's Next Medicines. And like you said, you've been all over the world at discovering old medicines to create new medicines here in the West. Can you talk a little bit about that journey and just how you found the courage really to travel the world and really immerse yourself in something totally different than what you'd ever known?
1: Yeah, well, I think from a young age, I always saw medicine as, you know, boiling down to two concepts, pharmacology um, or drugs and surgery. So surgical interventions. And it was during that experience in the Amazon where I started to see that it goes way beyond that. There's so much more to the healing process um, from the psychology to the relationship with the healers um, into just different ways that health and disease are viewed in different cultures. And so after that trip, I also learned that many of our Western medicines today that we rely on, that we get in the pharmacy, and I'm sure you and many of the audience members have have taken plant-derived medicines. If you can think of something as simple as aspirin, also discovered originally in a plant. There are many, many other compounds that have been discovered in plants and now are produced in kind of a pharmaceutical setting. But the original blueprints came from plants that at one time were used in a traditional system of medicine. And this is a case for lots of cancer drugs, drugs for infection, for heart disease, pain, the list goes on and on. And so what really struck me during these early days of study was that, wow, here we have this incredible, you know, array of different forms of medicine. We have, have over 34,000 species of plants that are used in these forms of medicine. Mm. And yet scientists have not, have not really explored these for the most part. And so that's really one of the things that, that spurred my drive to really do the deep work to understand which plants are being used in medicine and to try and investigate how they actually work.
0: Yeah, when you were getting your PhD and and going through all of the classes, did you feel like there was a wide breadth of 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 professionals out there who thought this way as well or did you feel like you kind of had to create your
1: own path? Yeah, well, you know, I trained in ethnobotany, which is the scientific study of how people relate to plants. And we're kind of a niche division within botany. There aren't like a ton of ethnobotanists out there. I'm hoping that the book will inspire more people to study this um, this field. Um, but yes, there there's a small number, I think, of people that really see the potential of of therapies in plants. But for the most part, modern day kind of pharma medicinal chemists don't necessarily see nature as this great reservoir of drugs. They've relied primarily on things that they can create in the lab. And as we've seen with the story of the discovery of antibiotics, you know, many of our antibiotics were originally discovered in nature. um, But we haven't found a new antibiotic that's been brought to market since the 1980s. And that's in large part because we shifted away from looking to nature and started just relying on fully synthetic molecules. And I think that was a mistake. And I think that's something that um, we're starting to see people realize, and we're starting to see a shift back towards studying these natural products.
0: Yeah. Do you think it was the onset of the coronavirus and now monkeypox that's really starting to wake people up to like look back towards nature to to realize that all of these things created in a lab are actually not as effective as something and it's not something that really people were ready to accept before but now there might be a turning point happening
1: i think i think that the coronavirus really hopefully woke people up to the fact that we can't destroy nature without a cost right um, as we move further and further into these different natural habitats, we're opening ourselves up to greater risk of exposure to new and emerging infectious diseases. Um, I think when it came to coronavirus, also we saw how difficult it is to come up with new therapies um, to treat these um, diseases, and and um, it's just for me, it's been an amazing amazing to see as a scientist how many scientists came together to look for solutions um, and really worked incredibly hard on that. Um, When it comes to synthetic molecules, again, it's not that synthetic or lab-made molecules are bad, they are effective. um, And many of them are actually built off of the chemical blueprints we we find in nature. Right? So I guess my argument is we need to do more to find more of these chemical blueprints so that we can expand our repository of various medications to treat you know, the diseases that we face today and the diseases that we will face in the future.
0: Yeah. Is it an issue of, of funding? Because I know that that is such an important driver of studies and coming up with new solutions to problems. Is there, is there becoming more of a source of funding for the work that you're doing out in the field, like physically out there looking for plants with your students, getting them, bringing them back to the lab and studying them? This episode is sponsored by Lunia. Lunia's mission is to elevate rest ever since it was founded in 2014 by Los Angeles native Ashley Merrill. Now, if that name rings a bell, there's a good reason because she has been on the show not once, but twice. The most recent episode, episode 245. Now we talk all about motherhood and managing stress and running a business, but we also talk about her beautiful brand known for pioneering washable silk. They have since expanded into other signature fabrics like organic Pima and cozy cotton silk. Everything Lunya makes is designed to tangibly improve rest with products as functional as they are beautiful. Lunya maintains a painstaking attention to detail, quality, and construction because they see their pieces as the anti-old t-shirt. They are the uniform for those who share their belief that resting is the most important time of the day. So if you would like to get some Lunia apparel of your own, please use my code UNSTRESS20 to save at Lunia.co. That's L-U-N-Y-A.co.
1: You know, scientific funding is, is a difficult area. Um, it's very competitive. And there's a lot of dogma within the, the landscape of what people see as being um, valid ideas to pursue. And whenever you're working on things that are perhaps complex because the chemistry of plants is very complex or perhaps don't exactly fit within the, the current dogma of what a drug should or should not be, you can definitely run into some barriers there. Yeah. Yeah.
0: What would you change in, in your field of academia to make it more accepting to new ideas, to new solutions? If you could, if you had a magic wand, what would you shift?
1: Oh, so many things. <laughs> <laughs> for one, I would really shift towards um, having a greater appreciation for what's known as multidisciplinary science. So this is the idea that instead of taking an approach that's only based in chemistry, or only based in biology, or only based in anthropology, that we became more open to endeavors that bring together some of the techniques and tools from those different fields. Because I think that when you approach problems from multiple angles, that's when you really start to see some unique solutions. And that's what we try to do in our research group is really think about these issues from not only the kind of laboratory science perspective, but also from the social sciences and from, you know, even the humanities um, when it comes to trying to understand um, where these next medicines may come from.
0: Yeah. I, in my mind, I totally just pictured, I don't know if you've heard that old story of like the, I think it's like five blind men coming and each feeling a different part of the elephant. And he's like, no, this is a long trunk. (laughs) No, this is a big leg. And it's like, they're all right, but they're just in these silos. So they can't see the full picture.
1: And I think that that totally speaks to that. No, that's the perfect analogy. I should, I should use that in the future. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's this very, I think that As as science has advanced, we've gotten very, very vertical and very nuanced and narrow in our in our vision of of the field. Whereas, you know, I think sometimes taking a more horizontal approach is, is I think, a a better way to look at problems. And in fact, when you look historically at some of the great, you know, innovators um, throughout history in both science and medicine, many of them were considered to be polymaths. Now, polymath is someone that can perform in multiple fields of study that can do you know, perhaps work in um, literature, that can write poetry, but that can also assess the chemistry of something. So this kind of broader perspective, I think is, is something that we should celebrate more um, and support more. Absolutely.
0: And that again brings to mind, you know, Carl Sagan, who was, you know, this, this brilliant mind, but he also with his wife was able to present it to the masses through artistry, through beautiful work. And that like, again, speaks to what you're saying is this ability to combine and, and nuance something that could be really difficult for someone to understand. But when you bring in the art around it, it's understandable and it's, it's accessible. So it's not just, you know, the high priests who understand what's going on.
1: Exactly. And it's funny you use that word, like the high priest. I feel like we've reached this system of like the high priesthood within science where people tend to talk in such a highly, you know, specific language, which is fine when you're speaking with other experts. But I think that it's really important that we bring science to the people because the reality is, is that most of our scientific endeavors are funded by you know, in america they're funded by taxpayers yeah um for the most part and so i think it's really important to to share that knowledge in accessible ways
0: absolutely absolutely so when you were writing the book did anything surprise you or anything that you didn't expect to happen through through your own writing and through the own editing process that that came through for you
1: well definitely i mean the pandemic certainly surprised me i was near the end of writing the book and you know, it's uh, that was a really hard time for me because I had, as it was for many people, I lost um, my grandmother. Mm-hmm. I lost one of my best friends um, to the coronavirus. And I had four kids at home that were, you know, trying to do online school. And I failed miserably at being, you know, a homeschool parent. <laughs> <laughs> my, 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 uh, my second grader at the time, like, it's just, uh, it was really hard. And mm-hmm. I know a lot of moms that listen to this show you know, definitely experienced things that were similar. Um, yeah. So that, that was like, that, that was a bit of a ringer. And then at the same time I was trying to finish writing the book and edit it. Um, so, so I'm just looking at it as, you know, it's a miracle. I finished it. <laughs> yeah. I'm so glad. I'm so glad that the story got out because it, it was a lot of fun to write and, um, you know it was it was fun to think about how to best tell the story because there's so many elements in a life that you can focus on and trying to find the right stories to illustrate the different points was it was great it was a lot of fun to do
0: yeah and going back to 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 making things more accessible for the masses you know you talk about these heavy science principles. And and I didn't even really know what an ethnobotanist was until I read your book. And I was like, oh, okay, I get it. And then you bring in your own personal journey and just everything that you've been through. I mean, it was just such a, I think, a smart way to to bring an issue to the world while also humanizing it. So I think you did. Thank a great you so job.
1: much. I appreciate that. Thank you.
0: Yeah. But I mean, I have to ask you, You're you're a mother, you're a professional. How do you balance all of that and not get overrun with, you know, the typical guilt. And am I doing enough for my job? Am I doing enough for my kids? How did you get through that, especially when you were writing it?
1: You know, I think, I think it's normal for women and caregivers to feel that sensation of guilt. You can never, you know, you're, you're giving so much of yourself to so many different aspects of your life. So, you know, it's funny because there's times where you know, many people see me in my, my scientific work as though she's a great success. And she's, you know, but there's so many days where I feel like I'm totally failing. And, you know, I think that writing the book also helped me realize that, um, you know, you do what you can do <laughs> and everyone's, everyone's is a bit different. You know, it also really helped me to realize just how incredibly important it is to have a supportive partner, um, when you're trying to balance a career, um, in family, and you take things day by day and it changes. I mean, the needs of our kids change as they age. Now I have, you know, teenagers and one in elementary school and one starting college soon. So it's, it's just, you know, the full spectrum um, of things and it's kind of chaotic, but it's my own beautiful chaos and I wouldn't exchange it for anything. I mean, it's, I think the is just one of the, the greatest joys I have in my life. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm so grateful for them and and for the fact that we live in an era where I, you know, have the ability to, you know, have a family and pursue a career.
0: And this episode of Motherhood unstressed is sponsored by Sample Call. Fall is here, and you know what that means. Cooler weather, layers, and of course the kids are back in school. Now, with that comes the threat of illnesses. It's what we've all known since we've had them in daycare, right? Um, But Samacol offers a great way to support their immune systems. They have key vitamins like A, C, and E and also a natural source of powerful antioxidants. So you're boosting that immune system and you're helping keep them healthy even though they're back in the day-to-day, especially as the temperatures get cooler and sicknesses start to increase. Um, But Ensemicul is great because they have a lot of different products to help you get that black elderberry in your system. Um, They have syrups, gummies, chewable tablets, drink powders, capsules, and more. Our family loves the gummies, I have to say. I love them. They're sweet and tart and I feel like it's a little treat in the middle of the day whenever I pop them in. And my kids do too, so it's easy to get them that immune-boosting support that they need for the school year and beyond. Now, if you're tuning into this, you know I'm going to get you a good deal. You can get 15% off your next order of $9.99 or more at samacolusa.com and use my promo code MOTHERHOOD15 at checkout. That's 15% off your order of $9.99 or more at samacolusa.com using the code MOTHERHOOD15. Is there anything that you do like in your day that's almost like a touchstone for your sanity or your wholeness or anything like that? So you go like, okay, I did this. Now I can take on whatever I need to.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a big, I'm an early riser. And I think the one thing that I try to do for myself at least three times a week is I go for a swim.
0: Hmm. and,
1: um, often with a friend and, you know, just getting out there and getting some exercise first thing in the morning. It's like, no matter what happens in the rest of the day, I've had that, you know, that chance to really do something that's good for me, good for my body. And you get that kind of energy from, from that exercise that helps me, I think, just approach the day with, with a smile on my face. So that's, that's one thing that I do.
0: Oh, I love that. I love that so yeah. much. I'm getting back into rising early just because the kids are back into school this week. So it's like yeah. it's forced early rising. But in the end, like it's good because, yeah, you can then kind of like it it does set the tone, especially exercise. I love that, yeah. um, so going back to the book, what was truly at at the heart of the message that you wanted to get across? Like, obviously, you're telling your very personal story, your journey. But then there's also, I feel like, a push for like, it's like, you're telling people like, you need to know
1: this. You need to, to hear this. What is that message in your own words? Yeah, I think, I think there were a couple of messages. Um, One of the things that drove me to write this book is that there are actually very few books written by women scientists um, about what it's actually like to be a woman in science and even fewer for those of us that are disabled in science. And so that was, that was one goal, is I really wanted to show what the journey was like for me. And again, it's not going to be the same for every person, um, but just to give that kind of that context. Um, I also really wanted to show people the incredible untapped potential of natural products from plants and how much we still have to learn from these traditional systems of medicine that in some cases, especially in, in modern science or pushed aside as just being old wives tales or, you know, considered to be voodoo, like not just not a valid form of medicine. And one of my messages was actually no, understand the history of medicine. And when I talk about the history of medicine, I'm talking about like thousands of years of history of successful trial and error that has led different people, different groups to understand which species are important for treating different diseases The ways that they're prepared is important and how they're they're administered is important. And by the way, we now have the scientific tools to dive into the molecules of those remedies to understand exactly what's happening and that we need to do more of that so we can innovate, you know, broader therapies for the future. And my third message was, you know, (laughs) this call to arms um, for antibiotic-resistant, you know, infections, We had a uh, report that came out from the U.K. government in 2016 that showed that around the globe, 700,000 people die every year due to untreatable infections. And that number is supposed to reach 10 million by the year 2050, by mid-century. A more recent report just came out that showed in 2019, I think we had over 1.27 million deaths. So if you map this out on a graph and you imagine that line, that diagonal line going up from 700 to 10 million, um, we are exactly on track. And with the coronavirus and we had, you know, greater use of antibiotics to treat these very ill patients in the hospital, and that also... Um, led to a boost in in more and more of these antibiotic-resistant cases. And so that's the third message of the book, is really this is an important problem and we need to act now or we're really going to face a a progressively more serious medical crisis in the future. Yeah. Do you have any particular plants
0: in mind that are like going to be the heavy hitters, at least that you've come across or read about or studied? Or is it just a call to arms to find the next thing that's going to save us?
1: Well, you know, we, my lab team undertook a study um, during the, during the pandemic when we were working remotely just to look at what is actually known in the literature. Like how many plant derived antibiotics are there? We actually found 459 compounds that have been documented in the scientific literature, but most of these, the, you know, the investigation of these or the development of these compounds kind of stopped there. Um, And so you know, there, there are many molecules that could serve as a starting point for more development work to see if we can make these into um, potent antibiotics in the future. We're also working in the lab on different ways of addressing infection. And I talk a lot about this in the book. You know, some ways that bacteria become very resistant is they can kind of create this slimy, you know, sugary fortress that they hide out in. And this makes them intrinsically resistant. Well, we're working on compounds that can shut down that system of basically Mm -hmm. taking away their defensive systems. We're also working on molecules derived from plants that can turn off their offensive systems. So basically their capacity to produce toxins that just rip apart your skin tissues. Um, So I think there's different routes that we can take in in treating these infections that um, show a lot of promise for future exploration.
0: Absolutely. And I think it's so important that, you know, there's people like you out there actually doing the work, like on the ground, getting this data and talking about it, even just having conversations like this so that, you know, the people with the money, with the power can then direct
1: it to where it needs to go. No, absolutely. I mean, I think that um, one other lesson we've learned from the, from the pandemic has been that, where there's money, there's a way, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, some of the reasons that we made such tremendous progress is there was an incredible amount of investment and innovation, um, to tackle this really urgent problem. And I think we need to take that same sort of mindset to aggressively look for solutions to deal with the coming post antibiotic era, uh, the pre-antibiotic era just to put things in context was less than a century ago. We've had antibiotics for less than a century. Right. Um, And, you know, we're heading back in that direction, and that's not a place that we want to be. And not all these infections are perhaps deadly, but if you can imagine having a UTI that never clears out the kind of pain that that people will suffer from. Um, or you could, you know, have other sorts of infections resulting from a simple scratch in the garden. I mean, that wasn't unheard of to die from, from an infection like that, um, in the past. And so I think we have to really take this seriously, you know, not with this sense of pessimism, but rather with the optimism that I, I think we, we do have a lot of things that we, that are viable to follow up on. Yeah. And that's truly like, you know, as I finished the book, like that's the message
0: that I really got, like, yes, this is serious this is coming, um, but that
1: doesn't mean that we can't prepare. Yeah, exactly. There is still hope. And, um, you know, my, my hope is also that, you know, students and in high school or college or grad school that read the book also may be inspired like, Oh, I might be able to contribute towards this fight in some way. And again, by taking this multidisciplinary approach you know, you may be able to contribute in unique ways from many different fields. And I think that's really exciting. Yeah.
0: Finding the elephant. I love it. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Um, Do you have any particular favorite plants in your world that you always have on hand, you know, that you use for your children or anything like that, like that that are your go-to? I mean, is it, is it the willow bark, things like that?
1: You know, um, I have a garden at home and we love mint plants just for like, you know, I give my kids tea all the time. And so some of my favorite, um, culinary herbs that will grow include things like just peppermint for upset stomach. Um, I also like to grow cat mint, um, uh, or catnip. Um, that is, you know, people think of, it cause cats get crazy for this, right? <laughs> but actually catnip, um, can make a really nice tea. And I learned Mm. about this in the Balkans and there they actually give their children teas of catnip and bathe them in it if they're having um, issues with kind of anxiety or nightmares and things like that. So Uh even in my office, like I'll have some lemon balm and peppermint and catnip, maybe a little holy basil. And I make different blends of teas just from the plants that I've grown in my garden. And they're really lovely to drink. Um, I
0: love that. I love that so much. I had no idea about the catnip. I'm totally gonna do that. Yeah, <laughs> oh, I love it. Okay, so we are almost to the end of time. Um if there were any lasting message that you would like to leave with the audience from the book or from your life in
1: general, what do you want them to remember from this talk? Um I guess the the main thing is you know, once you figure out what your passion is, um you're going to come up against hurdles in life, no matter what your you know, state of ability or, or disability is. Um, everyone has challenges. And I, my hope is that from the book, they'll also walk away with a sense of inspiration or hope for thinking about ways to overcome their own barriers um, and just get out there and experience the world is my other message. And when I say get out and experience the world, it doesn't mean that you have to travel to an exotic location. Just go for a walk around your neighborhood and get to know some of the plants that you encounter every day, but perhaps you've always ignored. And that might be... Um, it might involve you getting down on your knees and looking really closely at what's growing in the lawn. Um, if you're not you know herbiciding your lawn, mm-hmm. or um go hug a tree. <laughs> yeah. Just just form that relationship with nature. And that's something you should definitely encourage in your kids because I think it you just have a much better experience in this world when you feel that sort of connection to the natural world.
0: Oh, I love that. And I I I fully believe that. I mean, I feel like when we notice nature, it actually responds back to us and, and gives Absolutely. us the insight that we want, that we need. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. I love it. Okay, guys, if you're tuning in, the book is called The Plant Hunter, A Scientist's Quest for Nature's Next Medicines. Uh, Dr. Quave, where can everyone find more about the work that you're doing and get the book?
1: Great. Well, the book is available in bookstores. It's available now in hardback, uh, paperback just came out this summer um, we have an audiobook version as well and the ebook version. You can find it with any of your booksellers. Um, you can also go to cassandraquave.com to learn more about the book or um, check out some of my other resources. I also have a podcast called Foodie Pharmacology, um, which explores this link between food and medicine. Um, and you can find that on any of your podcast streaming services.
0: Beautiful. And of course, yeah. that will all be in the show notes. Dr. Quave, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your book. And uh, thank you just for the work that you're doing in the world. We're going to need it more and more. So thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to the Motherhood Unstress podcast. Please remember to review and subscribe to this podcast.